The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And today's show is uh, it's a little bit of a heavy show. It's a little bit... Um I'm not sure exactly what kind of a reaction this show is going to get. I don't really care. It's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. Uh, probably going to be a little bit controversial, but I wanted to talk about Chris Benoit's wrestling career. Uh, it's been 10 years since the horrific events of his family's murder and his subsequent suicide, uh, one of the most horrific things I've ever heard. We've talked about it in depth on this show. We had um, Nancy's sister, Sandra, on this show. Talked about it quite a bit with Chavo Guerrero and Dean Malenko. Uh, but I want to put those horrific last few days of Chris's life aside and focus on his uh, his wrestling career. And let's be honest, um, there is no doubt in anybody's mind that Chris Benoit is one of the greatest performers, um, pure wrestling performers of of all time, of this century or any other. And um, it's hard for me because some of my best matches were with Chris Benoit, and they can never be shown, they can never be aired. I can't watch them, but I still remember that he was one of my best opponents and one of the best wrestlers I've ever actually faced. So since I can't really ever talk about them or include them in any of the WWE Jericho DVDs, the numerous ones they've released, because of those awful events, I wanted to um, discuss them today. I mean, let's be honest, like I said, one of the best in the ring, intense, hyper-focused on wrestling, crisp, very smart. Uh, everything he did looked amazing. Um, hard to get to know as a guy initially, but one of the greatest performers that we've ever seen in the wrestling business. So I wanted to discuss that today, uh, and so I got Dave Meltzer from the Wrestling Observer. Everyone knows him. He's been on this show before. He's been on every wrestling podcast. He's kind of the guru of wrestling, but not only is he an expert when it comes to this business, he's also uh, he's also was friends with Chris Benoit. So I wanted uh, to talk to Dave because Dave covered his career basically starting from his uh, early days in Calgary to his debut in Japan, and the two of us are going to talk about Chris Benoit's early days and his early matches in Japan, my first introduction to him, Dave's first introduction to him, his jump to WCW and subsequently to the WWE, uh, this is about the career of Chris Benoit and what he was like in the ring and as a person. Let's put the horrific events at the end of his life aside. You can never forget them. I don't want to forget them. I'm not glorifying anything. I just wanted to discuss Chris Benoit, the wrestler. And I'm going to get straight to it with uh, with Dave Meltzer. Um, but first, I want to take care of all the sponsors who make this show available for you for free twice a week. Uh, one that I'm actually uh, just had some of it right now because I'm on the road actually filming. And I wanted to uh, tell you guys about NatureBox. I mean, you know I'm on the road all the time. 
uh, formerly with the WWE, now with Fozzie, f- filming a show for Access TV right now, filming a show for the Travel Channel. And it's hard to eat healthy on the go, as you know, if you're on the road. And I don't have to worry about that with Nature Box because Nature Box snacks are made from high quality, simple ingredients, which means no artificial colors, no flavors, no sweeteners. I throw some of those Nature Box snacks in my bag and I always feel good about what I'm eating and what I'm doing. And all you longtime sexy beast talk as Jericho fans know exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about Nature Box. You know what I love? I love them coconut cashews, but they've got over 100 other snacks to choose from. They're always adding new snacks, new flavors, new styles. I guarantee you'll find a favorite or two or three. I'm going to give you a couple of the other ones I like. I, I like the garlic pistachios. I like the cinnamon twists. And if you've got a snack recommendation, hit me up on the Twitter at Talk is Jericho. Let me know which Nature Box snacks you like, and I'll give it a try as well. And here's the best part. The snacks get delivered right to your front door so you don't have to hassle with the grocery store. It's convenient and delicioso, and they've recently made their service even better because now you can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum battle juice required, and you can cancel at any time you want. That's what NatureBox is offering to you. And if you ever try something that you don't like, NatureBox will replace it for free. If you try a snack that sucks, in your opinion, they'll replace it for free. So check out their snack catalog at naturebox.com slash Jericho. And when you place your first order you'll get three snacks for a free that's right three free snacks with your first order at naturebox.com slash jericho get your healthy snack on have it delivered right to your front door just go to naturebox.com slash jericho that's naturebox.com slash jericho eat like a king it's healthy it's good for you it's naturebox Uh, Before we get into uh, Benoit 10 years later, I have to say I'm very sorry and saddened by the passing of my friend David Z. Um, He was in Adrenaline Mob, uh, just a horrific circumstance of uh, they they pulled their tour bus off on the highway. They were changing a flat, a tractor trailer, hit that bus. It was actually an RV, uh, blew up. I think David was killed instantly when the van fell on him. Uh, just terrible story. And David, uh, I met him when I did the show Z-Rock. He was in the band ZO2 with uh, Paulie Z, another good friend of mine, Joy Casada. Uh, they had a great show. If you want to Google that, it's called Z-Rock. It was on IFC about, I don't know, shoot, eight, nine years ago. And I guess starred on that show and became really good friends with the Zabladowski brothers and ZO2 played with Fozzie at BB Kings in New York. They played with Fozzie at the whiskey, a go-go in Los Angeles. And David had just texted me earlier that day. We were talking early in the day because he was in Tampa. They had a show in Tampa the night that he died and he texted me and asked me if I was in town and um, I was not in town. I was up in northern Minnesota, but we talked a little bit, and then three hours later, he, he he's dead. And it's just an awful story, but I just wanted to say uh, this de- this show, uh, dedicated to David Z, super nice guy, funny, great bass player, super hot, great body, like like just a great-looking guy, uh, and very, very nice, and, and just would always reach out to me from time to time. And I haven't seen him for years. He was also in the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, which tours every Christmas. But I just wanted to give a shout-out to everybody that knew David Z, his family and just say Dave I love you man you're a great guy funny guy uh, you could eat like a mofo I don't know what the hell your parents did to you guys but the, the Z brothers could eat Ugh. I was at the rainbow one time and uh, we had a VIP um meet and greet there and we had like I don't know four or five extra pizzas and they ate them all within the course of about 20 minutes they were like piranhas and also Paulie and David also ate a a five pound burrito uh, at one point five pounds think of that so David um, Z will not be forgotten and um, even though he wasn't completely in the public spotlight for a lot of people he meant a lot to the people that knew him and um, I just want to say Godspeed my friend Uh, miss you and I'm going to miss texting with you and I miss your smile and your laugh and uh 
he was one of the good ones. So R.I.P. David Z. And I uh, dedicate this show to the memory of David Z. All right, let's go to Benoit 10 years later and talk about another of my friends who uh, is no longer with us, but in a far different fashion than the way that David Z uh, checked out. I'm here with Dave Meltzer, and I've, I've been wanting to do something like this for a while, and it was just the 10th year anniversary of, of, of Chris Benoit's death. And it's interesting, Dave, because obviously because of the of the horrific circumstances at the end of his life, his career up to that weekend has been basically buried, right? Yeah. Like, no one really talks about it. It's so hard to talk about it because it's like you, you feel – you know, you would feel guilty if you really talked about, like, you know, because he had a, you know, it was an incredible wrestler, obviously. You know that better than almost anyone. Right. And, but, you know, you almost feel guilty about saying, you know, like, if you go, he, he was a great wrestler, it's almost like, like you're, you're, you're praising a murderer, you know, type of a thing. Exactly. And I think now with the 10-year anniversary of it happening, I, that's why I wanted to, to do this type of a show, because I, I think at this point now, with, with all of the years that have gone by, I'm ready to talk about the career and talk about the, the, the life of the guy and not glorifying anything about what happened at the end. Obviously, it's a horrific thing, terrible. Those matches, it's, it's hard for me to even say, but before we get there, it's like you don't want to uh, ever de- uh, demean or diminish those, those events, but I wanted to talk about, about, about Chris's career, and the reason for that is... A couple years ago, they did another Chris Jericho DVD, and it was the third one they'd done. And once again, you choose the matches. I can't choose any of those Benoit matches, nor do I think I even want to, but that's like half a dozen to, to a dozen of my favorite matches that I ever had. You know, and right. I, think, I think it's probably like for a lot of people, uh, for all of Chris's work, like those matches, it almost feels dirty to watch them if you even can watch them. Yeah, it's really something. I mean, you know, it's a funny story. A couple of years ago, because, I mean, I, I, I probably not watched one Chris Benoit match in 10 years, right. which is amazing because I probably enjoyed watching his matches as much as any wrestler that's ever been, Right. Um, you know, up until that point in time. But what, there was one night, and I think it was about four years ago, um, you know, I was watching one of the, the Japanese New Japan pay-per-view, mm-hmm. and during intermission they were... Um, they showed a match, and I think it was because they were doing, um, it was, must have been a, a new Liger DVD. So they, and, and there they don't have that stigma about him that they do here. Really? So they showed, you know, I would say like eight minutes of a Jushin Liger-Chris Benoit match from both of their primes. And it was like, I, I, at first, you know, my thing is, is like, I don't want to watch this. But mm-hmm. then it's like, well, it's I'm here, I'm watching, you know what I mean? Right. I paid for the pay-per-view, right? Right. So it's like, I watched it and it was just like, oh my god! It was like, you know, I, I, you know, it's like it's one of those things where you like you remember he was really good, mm-hmm. but because you haven't watched in ten years, it's kind of like a faded memory in a little bit of way. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, you watch him like and go, oh my god, he's like, there's like nobody as good as those two guys today, or maybe they're as good as the best guys today, but you know, they're, you know, it was it was like almost kind of blew me away again about like how just how great those two guys were. I find that for if you if you go to those those three guys of that trio of Eddie uh, Guerrero and Chris and Dean Malenko, it's I find it's like that for all three of those guys. Now, obviously, Chris for different reasons, and and Eddie is obviously passed away, and Dean's not working anymore. But if you watch a match of Dean Malenko's, for example, with Eddie or Chris or any of that combination of those three, it will blow you away at how smooth and how tight and how crisp it is. 
but we forget because you don't watch them, and obviously for different reasons. But but it, it always blows me away. Like I said, I watched a Dean match a couple weeks ago and forgotten just how great he really was in the ring. And it's like that for Chris too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I remember. No, I, I will. You know, obviously, I watch Eddie Guerrero matches, and it's almost like. Um, that's another one where when you watch it, it's like you, you kind of come back to exactly what you just said. Right. Where it's like he's, he's so smooth and he's so good. And, you know, I mean, he's really one of the, one, you know, he's, he's really one of the best guys there's probably ever been. And, and really, you know, honestly, God, Chris really was too. Mm-hmm. You know, no. I mean, um, I mean, I think, you know, when thinking back, I mean, the other one with those two guys, I, I do want to say the story. I, I was in Japan once and there was a, a tag match. And it was on one of those shows. You know, sometimes in Japan, as you know, there's these. You go to a show, and it's kind of like a cold day, and it's a cold crowd. Yeah. And the buildings aren't that warm, and so the people are kind of sitting on their hands a lot. I mean, they were, you know, they're they're. It's not like they're not enjoying the show, but they're 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 doing the study thing. You know, mm-hmm. they're studying it. So Chris and Eddie were on opposite sides of a tag match with um. I think it was Otani and either Liger or Sasuke. I don't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember the building and everything, but you know they. they they tore down the house, which nobody else, none of the main eventers could do. Nobody mm-hmm. else on the show could do. They just absolutely tore down the house. And I actually went out with them afterwards, and I just go, man, you know, you guys, <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, for a, for a bad crowd and everything like that, you were freaking unbelievable. And both of them go, you really think so? <laughs> like, and, then and then they sit there, and they're pointing out everything that was wrong with the match, yes. which none of which I would have noticed as a fan, of course. But that was those two guys. Like, you know, I, it was very rare. I remember I worked with Chris once in Japan, uh, tag team match was good it, it, when I started going to New Japan when I started with WCW and I remember Honaga was in the match as well I don't remember exactly who else was in it but I went for a spin kick and I missed but only missed to the point where no one would see it because Chris bumped so fast that we just kept continued on it wasn't like a you know you screwed up or a blatant mistake it was like I didn't hit him as crisply as I should have but he still bumped after the match was done I went looking for him and I couldn't find him anywhere I found him in the boiler room doing squats and i said what are you doing he said you know i never should have bumped off that that was so unprofessional of me and that was such a bad rookie mistake uh i had to do squats he did 500 squats is like purging oh himself for for making that mistake you know and, and then when you hear things like that and then you kind of equate it to, to the last few days it's like there was a lot of issues with him even though he was so good maybe one of the best ever maybe the best ever in a lot of ways he still had that self-confidence problem like you said, asking you if you thought that match was good, really, you know? I mean, I, I think there may be like this perfectionist thing where maybe he held himself to a, you know, and that's probably why he was so good, is that he held himself to a standard that probably was unattainable because if, if that match, and Eddie was like that to a degree yes, too, because Eddie was, the same, Eddie was the same on that, because he's doing the same thing to me, it's like, it's almost like, you really think so? Mm-hmm. You know, like that, and it's like, you know, God, it's like, right. um, you know, I mean, again, if, if, if like, the standard of Chris Benoit wasn't good enough. I mean, imagine the standard that he wanted to be. Mm-hmm. It's kind of ridiculous in a way, you know. Yeah, well, you, when you mentioned that you went out with, with Chris and Eddie. Do, were you friends with Chris? Would you consider him to be a friend of yours? I mean, it's not, it's, it's not like... Um, Brian Alvarez was, like, pretty good friends with him. I mean, I wasn't like... Really? Not, not like you or anything would have been, like, friends with him or mm-hmm. anything. Nothing even close to that. I mean, it was in Japan... when I first met him in Japan when he was 20, because I was thinking back about this on the... on He, he just started there. And I, I had gone there, and a lot of the reporters, like, kind of linked us together because I don't think we looked alike at all, but it's kind of like one of those <laughs> things where in Japan everybody's going, I guess because they're, you know, two North Americans that were about the same height or something. Yeah. I don't know what it is. And we both lifted weights at the time. Same hair. Uh, 
<laughs> the, the, the hair was similar too, but it's like they're going like you look like twins. You look like twins, and like fans would come up and call me Dynamite Chris because Chris was using the name Dynamite Chris, which he hated by the way at the time. Really? But but because oh yeah yeah because it was he didn't want to be a copy of Dynamite Kid, even though everyone that's what everyone saw him as at first, right? So when he so, first went to um, Japan, he was called Dynamite Chris. He was called Dynamite Chris when he first started wow, there. Okay. Yeah, before Pegasus Kid and Wild Pegasus and all that. Okay, and um, so because of that, there was sort of like one of those things where the reporters would always like get us together and stuff. But but like we went, we would go out after matches at times because he knew that he knew it better than I did because he was he was living there. Mm-hmm. And he'd just go, let's just go out to like you know Korean barbecue or something. I know a good place type of thing. So. I knew him in the sense if I went to Japan, you know, that type of a thing. But it wouldn't be like if, if you guys came to San Francisco. It's not like he would call and go, hey, let's, let's get together, even right. though, like, it's possible we would meet and then he would, he was, he would talk to me. But it wasn't like, um, you know, I mean, it wasn't a guy I would call on the phone on a regular basis unless it was something, you know, like a, a specific thing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I mean, I, I was in contact with him. I'm not in contact with him. This is not, not the right term, but like when the weekend when all this happened, if you, if you remember when um, you know Shane Bauer, Beef uh, Wellington yeah. passed away, like like two or three days before. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I found out, you know, because that that would be one of those things where I would you know email Chris because you know he knew him well. They were sure. tag team partners, so I emailed him and I didn't and I didn't hear back from him. You know, mm-hmm. and and by the time you know who knows. By the time I emailed him, it was already part of that weekend. You know, I think it was yeah. like already by the Friday or the Saturday. So I never heard from him. And then, you know, you figure out why you didn't a couple of days later. But first I thought, well, I'll hear from him type of a thing. And, um, but I do remember, which, which turned into like a really weird story because what happened was, you remember like during that thing, the, the, um, the Wikipedia story where the guy like posted about his death before anyone knew about his death? Yeah. Okay. So that guy who posted, I guess, you know, the police went to him trying to figure out. It was just somebody who, like, by some weird thing, posted something as a prank that turned out to be, unfortunately, real. He knew nothing. Yeah. But when the police said it, he goes, oh, I heard it from Dave Meltzer, which, of course, he didn't. I had no idea who the guy was. So I ended up hearing, and it wasn't even from the police. It was actually from Jerry McDivitt in WWE, who who said, like, um, they had found out, like, were you? They were like, were you in contact with Chris that weekend? And I was like, no. It's like, well, you sent him an email, and it's like, yeah, I did. You know about Shane Bauer dying, but he never, he never responded. And it wasn't like, you know, because they were thinking, like, you know, maybe in the in the interim he said something to me, but you know, I, I mean, we were, we weren't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I, I always wondered if 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 Chris found out that that beef had passed away because, like you said, at that point in time, with all the stuff going down, and once again, it's so strange that that happened the same weekend because they were former tag team partners. They're actually business partners as well as well for a business that went awry and they actually had heat. I know they, they had a, a falling out and hadn't spoken for years and years and years uh, at that point. I didn't in time. even know that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, I don't have to get the reasons for it, but they were where they were partners in a business that didn't work out. And the Chris and Biff did not like each other as a result of that. So, um, and just one more thing to talk about how, how they said that you used to look like Chris or you did look like Chris. Um, when I first started, in Calgary, I was training uh, at the Silver Dollar Action Center with with Lance Storm and, and the you know cast of, of miscreants that we never heard from again. And there was a local promoter called Bob Puppets. That was actually his real name, believe it or not. And he said he was going to book me on my first show. And he said I, he wanted to call me Rob Benoit. Chris, oh Chris Benoit's little brother because he thought I looked like him so much. <laughs> I was like, you can't call me Rob Benoit. <laughs> the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters 
both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Talk is Jericho. So when did you start? Uh, I mean, obviously you've been one of the world's you know, most foremost wrestling journalists since the 80s. When did you start hearing, first hearing about Chris Benoit and what were you hearing about him? From the start, was there a buzz about him? Well, well I was watching Cal- the Calgary, you know, television show. I was getting tapes from Calgary, so so I probably saw him, like, whatever it was, probably within a couple of weeks of his debut, if not right away. Whenever his first match in Calgary was, I would have seen him. And he was, you know, he was already one of those guys. You know how some guys you can see in their first match and you just, it kind of clicks where it's like, you know, you, you just go like, He's probably going to be pretty good. He's right. got a you know that natural athletic ability, the way they move, you can just sort of tell. So I mean, I was like, a, like I'd say, like a fan of his, or, or was I had my eye like, like this guy's going to be good. I mean, from the first time I saw him, and, and they, you know, they pushed him pretty quick with um, I think it was wasn't was Chris Benoit and Ben Basrab as a tag team right away. I think so, right off the bat, yeah. Yeah, so they they pushed him as tag team champion pretty quick, and you know that that you know when you look back at that era of um, Stampede Wrestling with Pillman and, and Owen Hart and and Chris. And um, Jerry Moore and and, and and Liger was there. So I mean, it was like when you're watching that, it was it, it's it's almost like you're watching like the future of wrestling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you think back about it, mm-hmm. it's funny because you know Calgary was it was so good at that point in time, um, and just knowing and how financially disarray it was. But for me, that's the first time I saw uh, Stampede living in Winnipeg. And you mentioned all those guys with with Pillman and Owen and Chris, uh, uh, and then they also had these like the guys like Bad News Allen. They had Jerry Morrow. They had Greg Gama. They had Johnny Smith. All these tremendous, tremendous performers. Right. Muck and Singh was such a great territorial heel. Yeah. Uh, and then you know, and then of course uh, Chris was there, and ended up in a feud with Bob Brown, who was the Booker. But you could see like. Chris's style was very solid and very much like Dynamite Kid, which we found out years later he was obsessed with the Dynamite Kid. Yeah. And it blows me away at how never have I ever seen two guys from different families, because families tend to work similar, if you notice that. Like, have you ever noticed that before? Like, you know, Bret Hart and Owen Hart would take a turnbuckle the same way or take a body slam the yeah, same way. Yeah, or even, even when I watch, like, Curtis Axel, I can see a little yes. bit of Kurt Hennig. In yes, it. Yeah. same with the Armstrongs. Like, Brad and, yeah. and, and, and Brian and Scott and Bob, they all move in similar ways. But I've never seen two guys like Dynamite and Benoit that work so similar with no relations because Chris is such a carbon copy of Dynamite in so many ways. Yeah, I mean, I think it was like, but even like from day one, I, you know, obviously it was just, it was here growing up. So I kind of like accepted because you know if you grow up if you grow up in Edmonton, you know, and you're watching the wrestling in Edmonton, and Dynamite was you know was close to his size, and Dynamite was at that time the best guy on the whole territory by far, right. way ahead of his time. So I can kind of see where if like you're twelve, thirteen, fourteen years old, that's going to be like your your hero. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. But but still, like your hero was Ricky Steamboat, probably or whoever whoever it was, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was one of them. But but and, and I'm sure that there's things that you, that Ricky Steamboat did that you wanted to do. But but you're not a clone of Ricky Steamboat in any way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, or, or Shawn Michaels is another one. Shawn Actually, Michaels, even, yeah, yeah, would try and do his high spots, and of course, do a, a horrible version of it. But <laughs> I didn't have that same crispness, and even the look on Chris's face, like he, he looked like dynamite, just that stone cold type of vibe, you know. And when you first meet Chris, he kind of he kind of had that. He was, I, you know, you come to find out he's just a naturally shy guy. But he came across as very cold when you first met him. 
You know, do you remember? Yeah, the f- yeah, yeah. I, I, I could, I could see that reserve. He was really reserved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first time I met him, I remember uh, I was obviously a Chris Benoit fan from watching Stampede, and and they had this one of ten thousand Stampede revival shows in Calgary in '92. And I was in the dressing room, uh, and Chris walked in. I remember he was on crutches at the time. He had messed himself up in Japan or something. And he came. I went over to him, and I remember it was like such a stupid thing to say. I said, hey, hey, Chris, my name's Chris, too. <laughs> it's just like just staring this hole through me. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to sit down now. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Like not the friendliest of guys at first. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, 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 I kind of noticed that, too, you know, in, in the sense um, – but I mean, I think that like like at least when he was in Japan, like he had his little group of a few friends that he would hang out with, mm-hmm. you know, that that um, he was comfortable with. But I noticed like when fans would come up, he was like he was never rude and he was always nice. But it was like that kind of shy, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing, you know, where some guys just you know like just love it, right? You know what I mean? Sure, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. going to be super friendly right off the start, and that that wasn't really him. I remember like another thing, it would be like you know, hey Chris, how how you doing? Good, you. Almost like angry that you asked him how he was doing, and that would be his reply. How's it going, man? Good. You? It's like, okay, chill out, chill out. But when Chris started going to Japan, that's when he kind of came alive, um, especially on on, uh, on a more of a major stage. Let's talk about him as Wild Pegasus in Japan and just how the chemistry he had with some, some of those great junior heavyweights from the early 90s. Yeah, you know that era when you look back on it, because there's you know right now we got this like really awesome junior heavyweight era in in New Japan again. Yeah. And it, so so because of that, it kind of makes you know I was kind of like looking up stuff and and when I look at um you know that early nineties and you know Finley was was there too, which mm-hmm. kind of for whatever reason and I don't even know why because he was so great. Like I I don't think of him first as 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 part of that era, but he was always there. But you know, you always think of Malenko and Guerrero and, right. and Liger and you know Sasuke and you know, you were in and out. You weren't in New Japan, but you were um you know, W A R but right. you did some some of the stuff. There was some interchanging stuff. But um yeah, I mean the, the Liger Benoit, you know, and at its time was you know, to me that was like one of the great the best series of matches going on anywhere in the world. You know, they had a great feud, the mask match and mm-hmm. like it was one of those things where they would be you know, they were never the main event, but like when the show would start and they would, you know, they would, they would in New Japan and I think they do in all in, in, in Japan generally, they, they'll, the ring announcer will come out and they'll announce all the matches. And the one thing I always noticed, because in those days, it's not like now where they would advertise locally what the matches were. Like usually you might get, if you went to like one of those towns, you might, they, you know, you'd have the poster and have all the, all the faces and you, you might get like the main event or the top two matches. But when you go to the show itself, right. It was it was one of the things like you you didn't know who was in the undercard you knew who the, all the guys you knew the whole troop was going to be wrestling but you knew who was wrestling who and what I always noticed with with Benoit was you know when when he would wrestle and it was usually a mid card match mm-hmm. because that's how they slide the junior heavyweights that like the people would pop like it, they had this anticipation because because no matter what the match was like Chris Benoit versus Liger or or some sort of a tag but it was you know always Chris Benoit and Liger and like the people would always pop because because it was one of those things that like we didn't know we we're getting this and we we're going to get to see Chris, <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, Pegasus yeah. and Liger right right they, they they would pop on just the the thought of of seeing those two in the ring together. Yeah, you know, because like you say, yeah, that w- it was a golden era at that point. At that point in time, which especially led to uh, the first Super J Cup, the second stage, which was was a showcase for uh, for the great Sasuke, but also a showcase for Benoit because they went all the way through to the final, and Chris Chris won the first junior 
uh, that tells that tells the, something when they let a, a foreigner win right. an event like that because you know because those those events are made for the foreigner to lose in the finals and put it on a great match. But he, um, yeah, I mean that that and then the, and the mat that 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 first Super J Cup, the one that you weren't in, was mm. um, like I rem- I remember watching that and, and at the time at the time and I, I haven't looked back at it. I thought it was like the best one night show that I'd ever seen ever right because, yeah yeah because it was just like everyone was quality. You know, every match was quality, and then the last couple of matches were were just incredible. It's like some of those. I haven't seen some of the the New Japan shows in the last few months, but reading your reviews of them, where it's like, okay, like the last one with Kenny Omega, the sixty minute draw with, with Okada. It's like, okay, match number five is four stars, and match number six is four <laughs> and a third stars, and match number seven is five stars or eight stars. And oh I'm, god, like top half of those big shows. Um, you know, the, the, the one they had in Osaka on June eleventh. It's like you know the first part. The first first part of the show is like a normal, you know, real good show. Everybody's good, you know, it's fun. Mm-hmm. And then like the second, it's like it's almost like can you top this? And you kind of go like where, where, um, you know, one match is on, and you're going okay, like no one's topping this. And then the next match, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. It's, it's actually slightly better. And then it's like well, no one's topping this. And then when the with the, the, the Omega match with Okada, I, I I thought when that match started in the first in the first ten minutes of that sixty minute match, I mean it was funny because I'm going like because Tanahashi and um, Naito and um, and and, and Romu Takahashi and um, Kushida had their matches, and it was just like, man, that their first match was so great, and now they have to follow those matches, and the crowd's cold because they just was were turned on to such a degree. Yeah, and it's just like, man, they're not, it's like they're gonna, I, I like you knew they're gonna have a great match, but it's like, but they're not gonna be able to follow before, and everyone's gonna go, oh my god, what a disappointment! But but it ended up not being a disappointment at all. Well, sure, but but I found that with the with the with the Super J Cup, I think the last three or four matches, like you mentioned, was just five stars, five stars, oh, five yeah. stars, four stars, you know, four and a half. With with Benoit being involved in in three or four of those matches, however many there was. Right, I think he worked three matches that night. And, yeah, and, and and they were yeah, but then they were all and they were all great, topped off by Sasuke, which was yeah, just incredible. His coming out and, and that, around that time, somehow, and this is you know once again 1994, maybe even earlier 93. Don't know how I got his number, but I cold called Benoit because Tenru. It was 94 because I was in Japan, and Tenru had asked me to come move to the dojo in Japan, and I didn't really know what to do. And I know that Chris had been there and had, had, had trained in the dojo. So I called him, and once again, I was like, hey, this is Chris Jericho, and we've met before, and he's like, yeah, what do you want, type thing. And mm-hmm. then when I told him that I had the opportunity to maybe go to Japan to live in the dojo, he totally warmed up. Because then it was like there was, we had something in common, and that's where we started becoming friends, which kind of led to us working for the first time at the second junior, uh, second J-Cup uh, a year later, and the reason why I bring this up, and it's another reason why I wanted to do this show with you, is we were just at the Sumo Arena last week, and I was in the hallway remembering exactly going over that match with, with, with Chris, uh, and it just really kind of hit me like, oh my gosh, that was 22 years ago with the same exact place for, for the second J-Cup super st- uh, second stage where we met, worked for the, for the first time. And you know that's, that's, the, that's the reason you got the WCW gig, right? I'm not sure. Why? Oh, okay. So, so well, well, okay. I don't so I'll know. Tell you story. I'll tell, this, this is how you got into WCW. <laughs> yeah, please tell me, Dave. <laughs> okay, I, I thought I told you. I thought you knew this. Okay, so, so I had sent a tape of that show, that that second Super J Cup. Okay. To to, to Zane Breslov to to basically to, to give to Eric Bischoff, mm-hmm. and with the idea that you know you've got all these great junior heavyweights, cruiserweights, whatever at the time in WCW, and they were kind of like they were there, and I know Malenko 
kind of had that idea too of like, you know, why don't we do a tournament like they do in Japan? And and and, and my idea was, you know, you got a two-hour nitro. Why not just one week? Just you know, do a, a one night, two hour tournament with like you know eight guys. I mean, mm-hmm. the matches would have to be sort of short, but it would be fun, and they would be in the main event, and the matches would be awesome for that time period. Right. So that was kind of like my idea, which I never did, of course. Mm-hmm. But but um, and I know Malenko wanted to do like a best of the super junior type of a thing, like they you know like the three week thing, and they never did that one either. But so so anyway, I sent the tape, and Bischoff got the tape, and you know he wasn't interested in the tournament, but he saw the tape of of you against. Benoit, and he called up Benoit as soon as he saw that. And he just goes, there's this guy, um, Chris Jericho, who you wrestled at the J-Cup, and what do you think? Because Bischoff told me the story, like, you know, right afterwards. And he just, and he, he, he just goes like, uh, and Chris said, absolutely, you know, sign him. Hmm. And, and, and this would have been, um, in fact, I think he may have told, I'm trying to remember when he told me the story, but, but I know that Bischoff and I talked about that story the night we were all in Los Angeles for that. Remember that World Wrestling Peace Festival? In Yoki Will Peace Conan? Yes, yes. Yeah, so that's where, I don't think he told me the story then, but we were talking about the whole thing. I remember at that World Wrestling Peace Festival show where, because Bischoff didn't watch your match, and, hmm. and you had no, you hadn't signed there yet, or, or had you no. just signed there? No, no, I, I, yeah, he 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 came and he didn't watch my match at the World Peace Festival. He just uh, said, "Come, call me, you know, on Monday, and, and I'll fly, you know, we'll fly to Atlanta and we'll start having some talks." But yeah, I always thought that was weird that he came all the way to Los Angeles, hung around, and then had this hot quote unquote young prospect, but didn't bother sticking around to watch the match. It was, it was, I thought it was the weirdest thing. Because he he told me like. Um, he, he wasn't watching the match, and he just goes, I don't have to because Benoit gave the approval, right. and, and Benoit's word is good enough for me after seeing the tape. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's, that's, so the, but it was, it, was, it was absolutely that match. That, Interesting. That, uh, yeah. It's funny because in that match at the very beginning, like, I was like a really, you know, the, the heel with Jado and Gato and Fuyuki at the time. So working with Benoit, and there was some big buzz, and we had never been in the ring together ever, and I slapped him in the face. Uh, and then he slapped me back so hard that he knocked me out. I went down like on my knee for a second. And I remember thinking like, holy shit, like that was like a getting hit in the face with a baseball bat. And then afterwards I was, he goes, uh, he goes, you know, sorry, I'm not very good at slapping. I was like, you're actually really good at it. Cause you knocked me <laughs> out. But you know, I just remember like I, I was so nervous and excited about that match because I wanted to impress Chris Benoit that I had all of these spots and all these ideas and this big, long, intricate finish. And I was very surprised when I found out that he didn't like working that way. He liked calling a lot of his stuff in the ring, which was surprising to me for guys of that era in Japan. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was but, kind of his style. Yeah, but, you know, he was taught by, you know, I guess by, was, was he originally trained by the Hearts? I think I can't remember, but I know he used to hang around the the arena, and I think they started training him a bit. And maybe it was Mister Hedo was involved, but mm-hmm. I don't think he ever went through the dungeon per se. You know, I think yeah. it might have just been kind of hanging around and getting training, picking up, and just being more of a natural than anything. You know, because I think with Chris, like you said, he was all or nothing, and that's why he was obsessed with wrestling. He never had a job other than wrestling. Did you know that? I didn't know that, but but he was he was like nineteen, I think, when he started with yeah, maybe even eighteen, eighteen or maybe eighteen. But he never worked as a paper boy or stocking shelves at a grocery store, or any of the shit that that most of us do. A foot fast really? All he wanted to do was be a wrestler. That was his only job that he ever had was being a wrestler, and then that translated into his training because his body was like obviously 
always 100% meticulous, no body fat whatsoever, just constantly just jacked up to the gills. And whether you're on the gas or not, his training regimen was so strict that it just, he looked that way. You know, he was always just focused a thousand percent on something. Now, I, I, someone told me this. I never asked him, but I was told that like, okay, you know, like when you went in the old days when they would have like the, the, the protein shakes. Yeah. And and like you would, you almost have to drink them with milk because if you drank them with water, I mean, it, it, if you drank them with water, it would be like, I don't know, like as I recall, it was like impossible in the, in the stuff that they had then. You know, I mean, yes, because everybody tried to do it because of the mentality. Well, if I do it with water, you don't have the the milk, yeah. body, the milk fat, right, or something. Yeah. So you, tr- you everybody would try it, but nobody could do it. Or at least I couldn't do it. It's like, it's like li- liquid chalk. And then they would tell me that Chris did it because Chris wouldn't drink the milk. I was like, oh my god! That's like that's that's a level of dedication to to what you eat that like I couldn't even fathom. Yeah, and that's another thing because we used to travel together, me and Eddie, Chris and Dean, and Dean and I paired off in rooms, and Chris and Eddie paired off in rooms because Chris and Eddie would get up at seven in the morning to to go train. <laughs> On a day off, for example, and Dean and I would be like, why are you guys getting up at seven in the morning on a day off? We can sleep in and go at noon. But they they would get up in the morning and do that. And then those were the first two guys I would ever see when we go to a gas station and, you know, go to buy some snacks or something. They would look at the back of the snack to see what's the fat ratio. What are the trans fat? What are the sugars? What, and I remember like Dean and I would do it and then look at each other, and start laughing like what a waste of time. But they would like so meticulously every single carb had to be accounted for. Uh, no wasted, you know, motion or movement or, or, or food at all ever. Yeah. You know, which, which, like I said, that was kind of part of, 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 of who he was, I guess, training, eating, all that sort of thing. Uh, and another thing he used to do was check this one out. See if you've ever, if you've ever heard of this, a cup of coffee, two aspirin and some ephedra to get himself like jacked up, like hyper. Oh, before, right before the workout? Uh, yeah. Before the workout or before a match. Yeah, like a triple cocktail of caffeine, <laughs> aspirin, and ephedra. It's like holy shit, dude! And you take it, be super hopped up, you know? It's it's like it's like he he must have had like this just incredible like strict regimen of of, of everything in life. Mm-hmm. It sounds like I, I I agree, you know. And I think like you said, like it's a f- thousand percent focus. Because if you ask me about Chris, give me, name me one one name to, or one word to describe. I would say in, intense intensity. You know, all across the board, inside the ring and outside the ring. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com. T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N dot com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. This this is Talk is Jericho. Tell me about when, when he started kind of making his way into the States. Because I know at first he went to WCW and basically got jobbed out there. Yeah, he, he, he made his name in Japan. So there was kind of a buzz about in WCW about bringing him in. I know he, he did some WWE tryouts. And um, and I I heard that he did really well. Of course, he did really well as mm-hmm. because, you know as far as in the ring and everything. But he wouldn't give up Japan, so he didn't go there first. And then he, you know, New Japan and WCW had kind of a relationship, so it was kind of an easier thing at first. So he went there, and um, I think him and him and Wellington went in a tag team tournament, and he did really well. And then they started bringing him back, and then they didn't. 
But they didn't, like, yeah, like you said, they didn't do anything with him, even though he was probably like, you know, if he wasn't the best guy on the roster, he was in the top two or three, and, right. and then equal to anyone. But they, you know, for whatever reason, he wasn't, he wasn't a great promo guy. He wasn't tall, like in that era, you know, they wanted everybody tall. You, you know, you know, they had yeah. those weird standards that, that like, you, you have to be a, this, this thing or you, you can't main event. Even if you're great, you can't main event unless you're like this until, you know, a whole group of generation guys, like, you know, showed that to be kind of ridiculous. But, but I mean, it's, it's like, like with Eddie, you, uh, do you know the story of like when Eddie wrestled Terry Funk in 89 in WCW? Mm, maybe, but go through it. So, so, so Eddie's like 21, 22 at this point. And Terry Funk, you know, I guess because he was friends with the Guerrero family, he, he basically was, was, was working there, and he, he brought Eddie Guerrero in to be his job guy for a WCW Saturday night show where, you know, he was supposed to run over the guy, but instead he gave him like, you know, maybe it might have been an eight-minute match. I mean, right. it wasn't super long, but it was certainly long enough to where, like, anyone in the world, and he gave Eddie way more offense than, than you would expect for a guy who was feuding with Flair on top at the time. Right. Um, and and his, his whole mentality was to get Eddie Guerrero a job. Mm-hmm. And, Eddie, and Eddie looked phenomenal in, in the thing. And, and I just remember afterwards, you know, people going like, oh, yeah, that guy's phenomenal, but, but he's, he's too small to, have, to, to work in the United States. And it's like, but he, but he got over. He was phenomenal. Right, 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 right. right. And, and and they still had that, you know. And later, you know, of course, later he became a, a you know a main inventor and everything. But it was like, you know, that that whole mentality of well, that size, you just can't wrestle in the United States. You have to wrestle in Mexico or Japan. I mean, which is funny because like like with Chris, you know, with the, with the physique that the guy had, and 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 today, a guy looking like that would be considered tank, and he would be. Um, Nobody would ever think that he didn't look credible enough right, or sure. big enough or anything like that, let alone the fact that his, his ability was, you know, off the charts. But, but yeah, then they, um, they just didn't really do anything with him. And then he went to Japan, and then um, I think it was really like, you know, like to a degree CW because Paul liked him. Mm-hmm. And then when he went the second time, you know, the, when, 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 when they all went, when him, uh, Eddie and Dean went, then they kind of started doing stuff with him, but it was still like a it was still a slow process, even in the mid '90s to the late '90s. You know where, you know you, it was a real slow, and you know obviously you were there. You know how that yeah. whole game worked. You know there was the, the I don't think the top I don't think the top guys wanted any any new style to to, to to sink to sink into near the main events because, you know I think that they wanted kind of an easier main event style and keep those guys in the middle where we don't have to touch them. That's that was how I always viewed that that era. Well, I agree with you. I want to talk about the transition period there, but there's also, I can tell you a quick story about when he first went, uh, I remember, I think Ole Anderson was booking at the time, and Chris told me that, that he saw, he, Ole saw him in the hallway and said, who are you? And he said, oh, I'm Chris Benoit. And Ole went, jeez, are you f-ing ugly? And that was all he said to him. <laughs> <laughs> so that could be one of the reasons why, but you know, you, like like Ole was a model, and yes. he was on top his whole career. That's right, that's right. But you just said something very interesting um, when you're talking about that time frame because when I went to WCW as well, Benoit, Jericho, Guerrero, Malenko, we were all cruiserweights, and it was almost like I used to say it's almost like having leprosy. Like if 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 you told Jim Neidhart that he was working with Jericho, he'd be like, "But he's a cruiserweight or, or Booker T." Well, I ain't working with no cruiserweights. <laughs> it's like we'll, we'll make you guys look good. And I remember saying to Booker, "Dude, I'm I weigh as much as you do. You're like <laughs> four inches taller, but I'm two twenty five, dude." And you know, but that was still kind of this stigma at the time where they didn't really know what to do with this whole crop of basically 2017 main eventers. <laughs> were all 
cruiserweight style in WCW. If you look at Seth Rollins or Ambrose or, you know, yeah. all those guys, like they're doing topes every match now. You know what I mean? I, I, I know. It's, it's, it's so funny when you watch, like, the, the, you know, when I talk to people now, cause, and they don't believe it, because, like, they'll go, like, like, a guy like, like Daniel Bryan when he was, like, super, super over. And I would just kind of, like, make mention, you know, like, when, when in that era, and, and, you know, obviously Daniel Bryan was great. Um, in that era, you know, he would be, in, there was an era where, where he wouldn't even be in the business. I mean, they, I mean or, or maybe he would be in a small territory, but he would be an opening match guy. Yeah. But he wouldn't be a, he wouldn't be a star. I don't know if he could even get in the business. Then there was the era where he would absolutely be in the business, and he would be, you know, pigeonholed in a certain way, which the, the era that we're talking about. Like, he, he, he could have been in, in WCW in that period, and he would have been, you know, just like whatever it was. Like, you know, maybe like where you were. Right. You know, and, and maybe not even as, because he wasn't as big as you, so maybe slightly even below that. And people just go, nah, no, no way. I mean, he'd have gotten over. It's like, it isn't even a matter of being able to get over. It was just the mentality, yeah. like in, in their minds, if you're like not six foot or 220, then you can't main event, even though guys were under that did main event successfully. But it was just like this weird stigma that, that, that you know, the top, the, the people who made the decisions had. Well, yeah, and my first match in, in WCW uh, the first pay-per-view, shall I say, was in the uh, Lawrence Joel Coliseum in Winston-Salem, uh, is that North Carolina? Which, by the way, I can't believe we don't go there anymore. WWE doesn't go there because that, that was like a hotbed for WCW. That Lawrence Joel Coliseum was always sold out. Uh, and it was it was a fall brawl, Jericho versus Benoit. And I remember we got called into the war room with Kevin Sullivan was the booker. And what they would basically say back then is like, you know, you're up, you're down, and that's basically it. That would be the extent of your you know, the agent's uh, influence in the match. And I remember he said to, he said to Benoit, okay, uh, Benoit's up over Jericho, and he said, make it an 80-20 match. You, you take 80, and, and Jericho gets 20. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is the hot new upstart coming in, but just told to just get buried, right? But, of course, Chris didn't do that. But, but even still, I think Sullivan saw more in Benoit, but they weren't ready to give him that push up to the heavyweight level. They, he was in the cruiserweight division with me for six months, which, what's yeah. cruiserweight you know, about Benoit? You know, it's, it's funny because I think the Sullivan feud was the one that really kind of broke Chris out because they actually, they had, you know, I think, you know, with Kevin at that stage in his career, a guy like Chris was going to have the best matches with Kevin that anyone in the world could have. Good point. Yeah, and and so it, it, it you know it, it allowed Kevin to be kind of like in you know top of the card, and and then you know they had that natural rivalry that you know whether Kevin booked the rivalry but how that all turned out where Kevin's wife ended up with Chris and they did that storyline and it turned into reality or however that all went yeah. down which made it a very compelling feud you know it really was and um, so so I think that that's where that's where Chris got his first his first break like that and then they had him in the Horseman for a while. And, um, you know, he stayed, they, they, you know, he started like kind of climbing the ladder and it was funny because when he finally got there, that's when, you know, him and Eddie and those guys left. Right, right, right. What did you think about that with the four horsemen that had, was it, it was Rick, Arn, uh, Michael, uh, Dean and Chris. Was there. Dean was, Dean was there for a while. Arn, Arn was like a manager. Right. And, um, Chris was there. Yeah. I mean, but that, that was the period where it was such a, such a weird thing because, I don't know what it was politically, but it's like they created the four horsemen, and then they didn't want him to get over. 
You know, they right. just kept like you know, like the silliest things. You know, like like embarrassing them in the Carolinas where they were kind of like legends and right. And it was in the NWO. Like remember when the NWO did that parody thing? And it's like that. Well, they they couldn't get a comeback. And it's like, well, they're the baby things. They need some sort of a comeback. It's like, no, there's no comeback. And it's like I could. It was. I remember watching that, and and it just always mystified me. Like some guys were, were were protected at all costs, and then the other guys were like. They were they would not get a chance even though even when the fans would get behind the other guys and you'd make more money with an even feud you just wouldn't they wouldn't book it it was weird yeah well there was there were so many forces going on and we didn't really know who the boss was and I remember like that's one of the things for for Chris and Eddie as well is they were like saying like this is this is killing my love for for the business like I don't even want to do this anymore I remember Chris just saying like at one point. Um, I think there was some talk, and Ben Benwell might have been U.S. champ or whatever it was. He was on the rise, and there was some talk of him being one of Goldberg's, you know, victims on the streak. And I remember Chris going, "I'm just going to walk in the ring. I'm going to bend over and put his arm around, over my head uh, in, in the jackhammer position, and just let him jackhammer me. Like I don't even care. I'm just going to yeah. walk in and do that. And that's what those and these are guys like like Chris and Eddie and and, and Dean and myself as well. Uh, you know, you live for wrestling. You grow up just wanting to do this, and then it was just killing your desire to do it. And you could see it with, especially for for Chris and Eddie, because you could see it in their faces, and you could tell by the way they were acting. And they just they just had no zest to even be there anymore. And it's funny because I can't think of any classic Benoit WCW matches. I'm sure there was some, but it seems they were, they were all they were all good. But I know what you're saying, like compared to the New Japan matches and the WWF yes. matches. Um, like I could think of like with with Eddie with like with Rey Mysterio those matches were like off the charts classic yeah um and and like every Benoit match was good I mean he I mean the guy never had a bad match but when you're talking about like can I like if you're asking me the best Benoit matches ever like yeah I, there's, like there's none I mean I'm sure there's some the the one that stands out you remember this one I just thought of one was uh, Benoit versus Brett after Owen oh, passed yeah, yeah, away yeah yeah of course that's a classic but but there you go and that's that's in '99 and he got there in '95 so. Because that's another thing about WCW, which it blows me away. And it happened with Guerrero. It happened with Jericho, Benoit, even a guy like Billy Kidman, if you remember how over he got. Yeah, him and Hoobington Guerrero, yeah. But they would never let us work with the top, top guys, you know? You or, know if, or, 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 or if they did, it was never, like, you weren't, you weren't even allowed to be competitive. You, was like, you weren't allowed to be portrayed as even with them. Right. Even if you would get in there. Yeah, I, I remember Chris... So Chris and Bret Hart, the, the first match was obviously a Kansas City match, but then they had the match in Toronto. And this one really like blew my mind, because they, they're doing a match in Toronto where, where Bret was so over, and they were the main event of the world title tournament, so it's like a prestige match. And in the middle of the match, they cut away to some NWO backstage yeah. thing, which like absolutely like killed the match. By the time they came back, it's like you didn't even care about the match anymore. Yeah. And, and it's like, why would you do it with like your best workers in, in Bret Hart's best city, probably? Right. You know, um, in the and, and it's and it's your world title as well. It's like what you know, I, I, I you know, and, and that stuff happened all the time. I mean, how many how many times did, would would you be in the ring or any of those guys be in the ring? And the announcers aren't even talking about your match; they're talking about every everything but your match. I used to just drive me crazy. Well, and that's yeah, like you said, like Zabisco was always that way, and. Um always talking about something other than, than WCW, but, but, but then other than the match that was going on, always talking about NWO, whatever. But another thing I remember about Chris too, when I first got there, and this is something that, that he kind of instilled is he changed, uh, uh, into wearing like nice clothes all the time to the show. 
And I remember my first week I got there, I had some really shitty matches. You know, it's a hard transition to make from being in Japan as a heel where you got 20 or 30 minutes to do what you want and come in as like a no personality babyface who's got four minutes, you know, plus entrances. So I remember he took me aside and he was like, you know, you got to get your shit together and this is different here and buy some nice clothes. Like you got to dress nice. Um, so even though maybe psycho- psychologically he wasn't happy and maybe not getting the break, he still respected the business and his position as a performer to, to be wearing those nice clothes, dress shoes and dress pants and a nice shirt, like not suits, but just like really nice casuals if you're going into the office to do some work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, everything like the guy was, just, he was so dedicated to the business to the point where even I, I would think like even if he was miserable, it's like he still had that um, unending. Like he, I don't think he may have loved his position, but he still loved the the wrestling business. Right. But I mean, you know, it, it, you know, it's like I think guys like that, and even like with you, with you in the same way, it's like the guys who like really like mentally are in it the most to be in it, and and then you're in a position where it's not like, like if you're doing really bad, you know, look, if you had a series of bad matches, you know you do. No one has to tell you, right? But but when you know that you're not, you know what I mean? When you know you're doing well, and the crowd's reacting well, but it's like you're you're running in the, you know, like the maze, right? You're going nowhere, you're Mm -hmm. running as hard as you can, treadmill, and you just get nowhere. And it's it's just got to, it's got to kind of kill you, you know what I mean? Especially like with, with him or you, where You've been other places, and and you've had success. So it's not like, you know, you were coming in and you've never done anything anywhere. You were early in your career. It's like you were just, you know, you had to work your way up in in a new place. And I think everyone gets that. But it was like no matter what you did, it was never. It's not. It was like it was never noticed or something. And it really would mess with your head. You know what I mean? Because like I said, like if you don't have any 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 direction or any story, it, it becomes harder to put together matches and just go through the motions. You know, that's what happened to me in 05. I just, I can put together a match in five minutes, but then it was taking me an hour and I'd come up with nothing. It was like almost like having writer's block. And I, I think that, you know, that, that Chris definitely was experiencing that. And all those guys, what did you hear around the time frame when, when they left WCW? Did, did you know that they were going to oh, go? I, to... I, I, I was, I, I had like an intermediary or, or even sometimes with, with, with them, yeah. You know, that, that whole last, I would say like two, three weeks, especially, but even, even, you know, the whole, you know, even before then, but especially at the end, almost every day where it was kind of like, this is what was going on. And I, like, I didn't know, but I certainly saw it coming. And, you know, mm. obviously there was that whole group with Conan and Shane Douglas and, and, um, you know, a few others, I think Billy Kidman was in there too. And they, they, you know, some of them stayed, some of them went, some of them didn't know what was going on. Um, but it was, and some of it was over Kevin, but even before, even before Kevin Sullivan was made Booker, it was just a whole. There was like a real the whole frustration built up, and it was so weird to me because you're, you're I, you know, I, I, I mean, you're in the middle of a wrestling war, and granted, the war was getting pretty one sided by this point. It wasn't like it had been two years ago, where it really was a hell of a even war, and and you know, you know, and, and even war is like the greatest thing for wrestlers. You yeah, know, which I don't think sure. you, some people don't realize that, but. You know the guys that were on the on the one side, like on the WWE side, that were wanting to like put their foot down and squash them. It's like, dudes, don't you realize that you know you you actually want them strong? It's best for everybody. Well, but, yeah. You know, they 
WCW self-destructed so much anyway. But so they were on the way down, and they were had, were self-destructing. And you were you were already out of there by then, right? Yeah, I, I had gotten out of there and was almost like I felt like I had escaped from prison and left my friends <laughs> behind. You know, they were stuck behind the the bars, looking at me, going like, "Run, Chris, run." Because yeah. I, I get, I would get calls from them all the time, like, "Oh, we want to come, we want to come," but we're in these contracts, and you know, we're. I think they had just resigned. They're like, you know what? If we can't leave, we're just going to stick them for as much money as we can get. If that's all this is about now, then I remember Chris. Like, if it's all, if it all, if all I'm going to do is make money, but be miserable, I'm going to make as most money as I can. Which is why it surprised me so much when they gave those those guys the release all at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I was thinking this because. When it was all going down, it's like I knew they were under contract. I knew they were unhappy as hell and they wanted to get out. But they had signed them and they were making real good money. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was the, the one solace of that period with WCW is, is that you, you, they were making good money. But um, they, wanted, they wanted out so bad. But I, I thought, like, as much as they were past their peak and WCW was, was, you know, in real rough shape in a lot of ways, I always thought, like, you know, you know, even and even the year before, I always thought that like like, like Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero, to me, were always like the future of WCW. And you, and you were you too, mm-hmm. you know, before you left. But they, you were already gone by this point. But I always thought like this is the future, uh, uh, you know, because the the old guys can't be on top forever, and then, and now they're not drawing anymore. So if you're going to rebuild, these are going to be the guys. And then as soon as those guys left, I mean, to me, that was like the spiritual throwing yeah. in the towel. As, like from a fan standpoint, because I'm going like, well, they just got rid of their future. Their past is their past. It's like, you know, why did they let them go? Um, yeah, you know, but but for whatever reason, they let they let them go, and then they showed up. You know, they let them go like a full release to go to the other side to show up on TV to do that incredible rating for that match in Dallas that first weekend. You know, it was it was almost like, you know, I, I almost considered that week to be like like even though the war to me was kind of already over by the end of eighty. 98 or by early 99 to me that was like you know when you plant the flag and, and you surrender you know what I mean? yeah, yeah yeah you're just holding on for for dear life but you know you're going down because it's funny when you think about it. if you go like let's go with like the top five cruiserweights for that you know time frame uh, uh you, you go guerrero jericho benoit mysterio and malenko four out of those five became WWE world champions yeah isn't, isn't that crazy yeah, I, it, it, and 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 the funny part of all that was that WCW was the one with the rep, and at the time, this is even the truth, in the 90s, WCW was the place where a smaller guy could go and get a job, because WWE, you know, right. this was always the big man's territory, but when you guys all went over there, you know, whatever it was, quality rises to the top, or, you know, how, however it was, um, you know, the whole, it's the new era of wrestling. Sure. And I mean, and, and, and it was it was always like, to me, you know, one of the things about that that I was always really sad about was... Um, when Owen Hart passed away, because when Owen Hart was there, it was still that old era where Owen Hart, even though he had an, a nice career there, you know, it's like he had a nice career there. But if he would have like been a Reno, he, he was going to wrestle five more years minimum. Right. You know? And so when you guys all got there, he would have been in that mix with you guys, yes. and he would have been, and, and I'm sure it would have like boosted his of course morale would have. to have guys like that, you know, like Chris Benoit or whatever, you know, to to be able to work with and to do programs with, and I think that it would have been. I think, without a doubt, it would have been like the best period of his career as well. I agree with you, and that's actually if you, if you would have put together a list of like the top ten reasons why I left WCW to go to WWE, 
the chance to maybe work with Owen Hart would have been on that list. Like I was wow. like, oh, I finally get my chance to work with Owen. And then he passed away, you know, the months before I got there. But like you said, that would have been a resurgence for him because he would have been motivated to see Benoit and Jericho and Guerrero. And because, you know, at heart, Owen was a tremendous worker, but he was also, you know, whatever. I don't care. No one's pushing me. So I'll just go and do these jokey things and have fun. And who gives a shit, you know? And that to me is another reason, like you said, why, why that would have changed for him. Now, what, 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 what was the, the, the word on the street from the WWE side when those four guys came in after a month or two? Did you get any reports about what they what Vince thought about them or what anybody thought about them? Um, I mean, they, there was a, there was a weird struggle, I think, with Chris. I mean, I remember like some people trying to say, I mean, it was like so ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like, oh well, I, I just remember like, yeah, well, Chris, if he's got the right opponent, can have yes. a good match, and it's, and it's just like it's just like, come on. I mean. Yeah. I don't want to hear this. I've seen this guy for like 15 years, and he's as good as anybody in the business at this point. And and you know, I mean, I guess there's probably a, a style adaptation period that you had to go through. But but don't even. I remember when I first heard somebody say that, like, well, if Chris is in with the right guy, he can have a good match. But he's not like really, yeah. you know, um, um, it's what they crack him up to be. And it's just like, you know, don't even. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you could say that to me about like almost anyone, and I'll go like, well, there's whatever. But like, like at that point, like with Chris Benoit, eighty. Now I didn't hear that about Eddie at all. Mm-hmm. But with Chris, that's I did hear that at first, although you know, he ended up being like as good as anybody on the roster. You know, from day and he was from day one when he was there. He was is you know, there were guys in his league, but who there's nobody better. I remember being in Detroit, it was the first time the Radicals worked on Raw and it was a tag team match. I think it was uh, maybe Eddie and Perry where Eddie got hurt right off the bat. Dean was against X Pac and Ben Wolf was was against Triple H. And I remember Triple H, and this is when Triple H and I and I hated each other back in those days. I remember him kind of hearing him in passing, go, "Yeah, he's not too bad. You know, he's all right." And I'm like, "You got to be freaking kidding me, dude!" You know, because they brought him in the first night, the, the basically the the unbeaten WCW champion, because he had just beaten Sid. And put, right. you know, gave the belt back to them. They bring him in as the the the, the undefeated WCW champion. And he lost to Triple H on a Monday Night Raw for nothing in like ten minutes or whatever it right, was. Right, 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 right away. And the funniest part about that that thing was is the match with Triple H. As I remember, it was a fantastic match. Yes, you know, very, I mean, very it's good. like it wasn't like well, there was style clash and you're going to blame the other guy. It was like it was a great match. And then they're still doing well. He was in with Triple H. And it's like, yeah, you know. yeah, because Triple H was 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 tremendous. I could be his peak as a worker. He always had great matches. But you can tell when someone's yeah. carrying somebody and when someone isn't. But you know, once again, the the wrestling war was real. And I got it when I first came in, and Show got it, and the Radicals got it. Where like all but all those guys that came in in one got it. it was the worst, don't you think? Who did? When when when, the, when WCW closed and they brought all those guys oh, in yeah. at once, yeah, 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 those yeah. guys got it the worst, I think. But but those guys weren't exactly the best of workers. Like you're talking True. about Big Show, Jericho, Milenko, Benoit, Eddie. There, those are great workers that they were yeah. coming in and, and burying us for having the audacity to come to the WWE. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Even like Big Show, I, I mean, it blew my mind because it was funny because I I remember talking to Vince McMahon about Big Show, and, and, and Vince, like, just because he was so big and athletic, yeah, you know, Vince was, like, so high on him before he had him, and it was, like, he would, like, almost, like, fantasize, oh, I had this guy, <laughs> yeah. this, this, and this, and then he had him, when he got him, and I remember the first thing he did was have Steve Austin pin him, yeah. and I'm thinking, like, you know, it's, like, nothing against Steve Austin, you know, who's, who's the top guy in the business at the time, but, it was, and it was, I think it was a TV match, it's like, okay, maybe someday Steve Austin does pin him, but it was like way too early, and it's like, what yeah. do you, you know, uh, you know, it's almost like you have to establish that these guys because they came from WCW 
we're not as good as your guys. And it's like, who cares? They're your guys now. Make make I know. You know make them as big as possible rather than like we have to pay their dues and, and, and bring them down before we can build them up type of a mentality. I don't know why you have that. I, I, I think there still is a little bit of an element to this day. And people forget like the, my big coronation when I beat Triple H for the title in State College and then had to give it back after the commercial break. Yeah. He, a huge moment for me. But what people forget is that the main event of that show was a six-man where Triple H pinned me. Yeah. People forget that. So, yes, I won the title. And, yes, there was a big controversy. And at the end of the show, eh, Jericho gets beat by Triple H. <laughs> no reason for that whatsoever, you know? Yeah, yeah. But what they would do then is, once again, put us back together again. And that's when Chris and I really started our rivalry because we didn't really work too much in WCW. But when we got to WWE, I think the first year and a half he was there, we worked probably – 60 70 times and had some really classic great matches and that's what i was talking about earlier matches that i can never include in my resume ever again well i mean it's funny because you had you had when i was when we talked about doing the show i started thinking about like from your standpoint i mean you had a ladder match with him and for whatever reason i thought it's one of the best ladder matches that i ever saw Thank you. I but, agree. But but people like they never. I mean, and maybe because it's because of what Chris ended up doing. Maybe, yeah. But people don't talk about that as like one of the great ladder matches, like they do, like Edge and um, Christian and the Hardys and the Dudleys and everything like that, or Sean and Razor or something like that. Or um, you know, the the one match that the the match in San Jose, which everyone does talk about because it may have been the best match ever on Raw, and it certainly was in the top, right. you know, three or four. Um, Jer- yeah, Jericho like, and like, Benoit versus Austin and Triple H is the one you're talking right, about. Right, right, where you guys won, where nobody expected you to win because, you know, they at that point, there was something that had happened where I think that business was a little bit, uh, you know, it was kind of down a little bit, and Vince had this mindset that we we got to make a change, we got to make some new stars, and then, so they did that, and then it was almost like he had buyer's remorse. It was like he, he went yeah. with you, and I remember both you and Chris, you know, you had a run, but it was kind of like, then he pulled back, and I was like, yep. why are you pulling back? But but that match itself was was so incredible, and even more so because of, you know, Triple H's last two minutes with the torn quad, yep. doing the whole finish and everything, right. which is just crazy. I mean, I know a lot of guys would have done it, but it's still crazy to think that he did it. Well, especially with um, the reputation that he had at the time and, you know, and the, and the dislike that we had. He still was there, and that's why I got so much respect for him for, yeah. for finishing the match with the torn quad. Right, right. And, and um but but it's like yeah on, on on one of your DVDs I mean that would be like you know one of one of the yeah. best matches that you were ever in and and you know you, you can't even talk about it it's like it never exists. Well, I think some people and you might even be one of them say that it's one of the best matches in Raw history. If you ask me like the best match in Raw history, that would be the one. I'm not saying it's the best right. because there's, there's but it would be the first one I would think of if you would bring that up. There would be like three or four others as well, but but it's like it's in the discussion and it's the one that always comes to my mind only because. The nature of the finish and the fact the match was just incredible even before the finish. If you guys would have lost, it still would have been one of the best matches in Raw history. But the fact that you won and the fact that he did the last two minutes with a torn quad from a story standpoint and in, in, in memory, I mean, it's, it's yeah. like, you know, what? yeah, one that you would never forget. From, from his standpoint, too, like Triple H, it's like, realistically, that's got to be one of the most incredible performances of his career, Absolutely, too. absolutely. And, and the crowd just going completely insane. And well, the original plan was after that, because so Jericho Benoit win, win the, the, the world championships, and then it was going to pair off with Steve and Jericho and Triple H and Benoit. And that's yeah. where we were going to go. But because Triple H got hurt, Vince, for whatever reason... To this day, still don't understand why. I guess maybe he didn't believe in me enough to work for the championship, but he put a three-way 
of Jericho and Benoit versus Austin for the world championship, and we were baby faces, and he was a heel. Right. The dynamic was screwed up because it was almost like it was a handicap match yes. against Austin. And and it, and a baby face like it's it's I don't say it's impossible because anything's possible but to me when you have two baby faces against one heel in a match it's almost impossible for the baby faces to get over yes yeah exactly and especially the position we we needed the help with Austin being Austin and yeah. then also there was a weird little side detour where he put a Austin in kind of a mini feud with Spike Dudley do you remember that. Yeah, so it's yeah, like yeah. we weren't even the focus. And I remember just thinking, like you just said, like he is, it's slipping through our fingers. After that night in San Jose, and then the next night in Anaheim, we had a TLC match. Uh, I remember we landed in Anaheim at like noon. It's like, oh, yeah, you guys are doing a TLC match, and the show starts at 5 because it's West Coast. And we won that one as well. And after those two big wins, the momentum was just lost. And I remember thinking, like, I'm in competition with Spike frickin' Dudley, and we're having a world title match, which, of course, Austin won, and it was just a cold match, and that was basically the end of, of the Jericho Benoit big babyface push. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Talk is Jericho. Let's talk about when Chris finally did win, did win the world title at WrestleMania versus Triple H and, and Sean. What was the caveat to finally give Benoit the big, the big chance there? I don't, I don't, I don't really know. What it was, it was almost when, when he was in the match, when he was, in, you know, when he won the Rumble and was was put in that match. It was almost like there was like really a lot of momentum underground. Like, well, the, you know, like he deserved it. And if you remember that night in the Garden, you know, even though everyone liked Triple H and 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 Sean was a legend already by this point, it was the story of that match was those guys have already had it. Can Chris beat these two legends? And win the championship. That crowd was completely a Chris Benoit crowd, and and then he won. So they got exactly what they wanted, and and um, you know, and then when he won it, it was it was interesting because they they put him over like you know two of their the biggest stars they ever had, clean. You know, I mean, it was right. you can't say oh they they backdoored him in and it was a fluke. They they gave him a complete clean win, but then as soon as he won the title, it was like he was secondary to the other guys again, and and I thought that his title reign was. It was almost like they gave him a title reign because it was the right thing to do right. that night, but they weren't sold on him as champion, and it was just kind of a, a, a thing yeah. to do. And he, he got a, he got his few months, and then he was there to, to put over Randy Orton when when they really were behind Randy Orton. It's interesting because I just heard something, and you might have read this from uh, I think Kevin Eck said something about when they were talking about the briefcase and Dolph Ziggler cashing it in yeah. and beating Del Rio, where he said like. We're not pushing Dolph, Vince said, Vince said. We're not pushing Dolph. We're just doing the win because it's the right thing to do tonight. But we're not pushing Dolph. Don't think that's the case. Even though he was, they gave him the world title. Like, yeah, don't you, like, I, I always thought, like, the same thing happened with Rey Mysterio, too. Same thing happened when, with when me? Rey, when Rey Mysterio won the title, and it was a big fight to get him. I think, um, I think Patterson may have been, like, one of the real big pushes to, to, put, him up, to put it on him. But the, almost all the writers did, and Vince wasn't really convinced. So then they agreed to put the title on him. And it's and and then as soon as they did, it was almost like, well, now we're going to make sure that no one believes him as champion. And it's like, well, yeah, you're going to do that. Why? Why? why uh, to me, I can never figure out why would you make a guy a, a champion if you're not going to at least get behind him 
during his title reign and then see, like, again, not everyone's going to work out as world champion. And if it doesn't work out, fine, you, you, you prove yourself right. But go with it all the way because I agree. timing is everything. Yeah. What if somebody surprises you? What if the people just go, we, we just love this guy this week and, and we love this guy and you can go with him for a while and, and the momentum's there. But, but yeah, like, like with Dolph, it's like that pop was gigantic that night. And to go in there and then already have the idea, well, we did it for the night, and then as soon as, you know, as humanly possible, yeah. we're going to take the title away from him. It's like, why have that mentality? If, uh, especially if, like, if, if when he won it, the pop wasn't big. Or you could, you know, right. you just go in there and say, well, we made a mistake. The people weren't really, they said they wanted it, but now what we did, we did it, they didn't want it. That's one thing. But to already go in with that mentality before he wins it, like, well, we're going to give him the title, but we don't really believe in him. No, I, I mean, and the, the, you know, I can say the same thing happened with me when I won the Undisputed Championship. I mean, after that, there was no momentum whatsoever. And I yeah. remember that happened with Chris. And did Chris ever get the world title back again after that WrestleMania moment? I don't think so, because he was, he was working with, like, um, I mean, he, but he, he was always kept, like, solid. Yeah. But, but I, don't, I think that was his only uh, there might championship. Be... Cause, cause now, now... Um, because he won it, and, and Eddie had won it in San Francisco, like, uh, was like, yeah, with, from, right, from, right before, like yeah. a month or two before, from, um, from Brock Lesnar. And it felt like, like they were, I know they were more behind Eddie at that time, but, you know, Eddie was a better promo, and Eddie actually did have more charisma than Chris by this point. Like, mm-hmm. Eddie had really come into his own. I was, the thing with Eddie that was so sad to me was when, when Eddie, um, when Eddie really had it completely, like he had every aspect of it, it was like then his body started breaking yes. down. Yeah, and it was like before when his body was just great. You know, he was still. You know, Eddie was shy too, and, and Eddie's promos weren't the best. But then Eddie, you know, just he just I don't know what happened. He just turned into this fantastic entertainer and charming and and everything. So he had everything, and and he could still go when he needed to go because he was so talented. But but he was hurting a lot more from what what I kept hearing. Mm-hmm. And and that's the that's exactly the truth. It just like when when one overcame, the body broke down. But what did you think of Chris's uh, development in the promo department from, you know, his WCW days to end up becoming WWE champion? Do you felt that he improved on it because he kind of had a little bit of a style that was his own? Yeah, I think he started to improve when he was with ECW, and I I, I think that like you know if the finances were different and the time was different because you know Paul was was kind of really a great mentor to a lot of yes. guys. I think that Chris would have advanced even further um, had he been there. Because when he was in WCW, I don't think, you know, then that was that was tough to improve. But, yeah, I mean, he, he improved. I mean, I, I never thought that it was like a situation where, um, you know, he couldn't headline because his promos weren't good enough. I, people bought him. as You know, the one thing with, with Chris, too, is, is no matter who it was, whether it was The Rock or Steve Austin or whatever, because his style was so physical. Yeah. People always did buy him as an opponent because I remember when when they first teased putting the title on him, which was when The Rock was champion. They would do these things where, where he would almost win the title, you know, a couple of times. Right, when Shane McMahon was his it, manager, was, you yeah. know, they, they wasn't like they were going, "Well, look how much taller Rock is," or "Look how much more ma- magnetic Rock is." They were, they were, they were completely with him in that in that period. That, that's when they had Shane McMahon as like his manager. Yeah, because yeah. that that was the big. Um, and once again, I'm probably wrong about this, and, and a thousand fans will tell me. I think it was called Fully Loaded uh, in 2000, and 2000, let's say it was. And it was the first coronation of, like, the three new guys against the three, like, stars. And it was, it was that's when I had my last man standing versus Triple H. Taker worked with Kurt Angle. And Rocky worked with Benoit uh, with Shane McMahon in his corner. And I remember it was, like, the three, you know, the, the three new up- upstarts. 
And that was a great pay-per-view because they finally gave us a shot to do something. And I remember that because I think they actually teased Benoit winning with kind of a dusty finish with Shane involved and then yeah. took it away. But once again, Vince doesn't do stuff like that for any reason. He does it because it's very meticulous. He's probably waiting to see what the reaction would be. Yeah, yeah, because the people were the people were accepting it. I just remember that reaction when people thought he won, that that it was like um, you know. But they 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 bought him, and I remember like that was one of the things where like in, in, even in WCW, where um, and and even like the Bischoff would even say it, but then they never really went they with do, it. Because I remember yeah. Bischoff telling me, like um, you know, like well, Chris is small, but he doesn't wrestle small, and and he's so physical yeah. that you can buy him against anyone. But but this this was at a period where they still didn't let him get past a certain point. Yeah, because he he wrestled like like a giant. You know, he was like I was going to ask you earlier what it is that you thought about him was was so that made him so great. And to me, it was the crispness of his style and the intensity. And he looked like he was kicking the shit out of somebody. Yeah, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And just fearless and physical. And you know, he had that you know that 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 physique and everything where it just looked like you know you just looked at the guy and you just thought like okay he's. He's short and he's not as as big as as some of the guys, but you would look at him and go, "This guy trains like a monster." Even if he didn't know, he just looked like he did, and he's intense. And um, you know, his his offense was his offense was just so believable, mm-hmm. and that was the thing. And you know, when and and his ability to make the other guy look good was was great too. He had it all in that way, right? I mean, you would know you would know better because you worked with him so much. But that's how I would view it as a fan. No, I agree. Like when you were working with Benoit, you knew that like, okay, you better be ready because it's, it's going to be strong style and not stiff. He was never stiff. He was not a, a stiff or dangerous, but very, very strong. I mean, still, I remember like I've never seen and, and almost everybody chops nowadays. Nobody chopped like Chris Benoit, not Ric Flair, not anybody. Chris Benoit's chops were crushing and they were the only, like, you know, I remember when, the first time I worked Ken Shamrock, I, I chopped him and he tied me up into a Christmas bow and I was like, why'd you do that? Because all those chops are fake. Don't give me that bullshit fake shit. With Chris, there was nothing fake about a chop. You know what I mean? It was hard hitting and it hurt. And that was kind of the way he, he would work for everything. Every kick, every punch. Once again, going back to that dynamite kid style. And also enjoying the calling it on the fly. Remember he used to work with Paige and DDP notorious for having the match all clocked out from A to Z. And, you know, telling Chris, okay, bro, we're going to lock up. And when you lock up, uh, what kind of a face are you going to make? Show me the face you're going to make. <laughs> Chris would be like, ah, or like make some goofy face. And then um, after they went through it a little bit, Chris would disappear. We would call like he, he, he would Houdini. He would just right. disappear. And Paige would be flipping out, looking for him. I'm talking hours before the show. Where's, where's Benoit? I mean, we haven't even gone over this. So what are we going to do? What can I do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then. Ten minutes before the show, out of nowhere, strolling down with it. He always had a straw in his mouth that he would chew on. He'd just come down and pace, where you been? He's like, oh, what's going on, man? And then go in there and just call everything on the fly and just have a great match. You know, that was kind of his vibe. Yeah. Very calm and cool, like knowing exactly what he wanted to do, but maybe not wanting to tell you about it at first. You know, a little bit of, a little bit of old school mystery where it's like, you know, the old Harley race thing. Like, what's your finish, Harley? You'll know. <laughs> you know, and they had he kind of had that uh, one foot in the old school and one foot in the new school as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what I was going to say, the thing, the thing that I was also thinking about, Chris is Chris could do this physical match, but I mean, he could do it every single night. Like you know, at every house show, he could do it. He did, he didn't like take house shows off because a lot of guys, especially now, kind of the menta- there's a there's a mentality of um, 
you know, uh, especially in Japan, there is, and 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 you know, there is to a degree here where you know you, you save up and and you know the pay per view match. I mean, is, is is balls out, right? Yeah. And and the other matches, you know, you, you go out there and have a good match and all. But with Chris, I always felt like when I would see him at a house show, it was really pretty much the same as as the pay per view. Yeah. Um, and and he was able to do it because a lot of the one thing I worry about with with the guys today is they they do matches. And they're, they're incredible matches, and, they, and maybe they could do it every night. They don't, but I don't think they can because it's it's so physically taxing. And even mm-hmm. with some of the, the younger guys now, where you know, like and they, they do all the, the great acrobatics and the, the great spots. And I just remember like a couple of the guys when I see them, and, and I go like, oh man, we're we're really hurt. And they're really only working weekends. You know, they're not working like a, a right. two hundred day a year schedule, and they're hurting. And it's just like the one thing with that, what Chris was able to do. Was he would work that super physical style, but he did it, you know, fifteen whatever it was fifteen straight years, and whatever injuries he had, he had. But it wasn't like oh, I need I, I need two months off to heal. Like guys would, you know, I just need some time off to heal. Um, well, it, the, th- the thing, Dave, about that was I remember like Chris would say, okay, you know, tackle, drop down, you know, hip toss, and that'll just meet meat and potato you. Although the way he said it was like meat meat and potato you. Like with D's, meat and potato, and meat and potatoing basically meant you know I'll kick you in the corner, I'll throw you off, give you a big elbow, I'll you know give you a hard turnbuckle, just all the basic things that not a lot of guys do, but it all looked like devastating, wearing down. Like like the best belly to back suplex ever, is still Chris Benoit. He'd pick you up in the air and pull you down so fast, it looked like it was killing you, but it was not a hard move to give or to take. And that was like I think what you're saying is because he would do the meat and potatoing, which is just basics, it's not not flying off the top rope. It's not something that's going to hurt you, but it looks so devastating, and it's kind of a great trick to be able... It's like a, it's like a putting on a, a rest hold, but it's not a rest hold. It's offense, but not very taxing offense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, that, that's, that's the, the, the one thing. It's like, to me, like, I always thought, like, that, that kind of style, like, Bret Hart was another one where, mm-hmm. like, it's like you have a style, but you can do it night after night after night, and yes. you know you bruise up and you're sore, and you're you know you you feel like you were in a, a football or whatever it is. You feel like you did you did something real physical. You had a real hard workout, but you can go and do it the next day as opposed to I did this match. Now I need a week off before I can go do it. Right. It's like I that that's the thing that worries me about some of the guys now is that they they um that the mentality is okay. I'm going to just do everything in in a match, and the matches are great. But it's like now, but now after this match, I need a week off to, to heal from the match. And it's like, if you do that, I wonder about, um, you know, especially once you get past 35 or something like that, because, you know, everyone past 35, you start having to, to figure out a different way of wrestling or else you're not going to have longevity. But, but Chris still once in a while, would I still have never seen it to this day. Two things. He would do it. The one time with that ladder match, he did a tope out of the ring and I hit him with a chair as he did the tope, like as he's out of the ring flying chair shot, and it would just like, it looked like a, like a, a bat that had hit a tree, just boom and straight down. Or the other one that we did quite a few times was I just move out of the way. He goes for a tope between the second and third rope. I just move out of the way, and he just crashes and burns into the guardrail. Nobody does that now. And I think, like you said, fearless. So there was that high impact. Like, are you sure you want me to just move out of the way? He's like, yeah, no problem. You know, never got hurt until he did, but it's like, I'll never forget, like, you want me to hit you with a chair as you tope? How can you even protect yourself? He's like, don't worry about it. Like, there was that element to him as well. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, he did have, he did end up having the, the neck issue. Yes, you know? you're right. You're right. You know, yeah. and a, another thing that we would do a lot, too, is just go in the ring and stand there and not really talk. But we in that ladder match, once again, we did a, a Walls of Jericho 
over top of the ladder on, on top of it. I don't know if you recall. Is it, I do remember that spot, absolutely, yeah. That, that was all him because we were going to do the, the figure four on the post and Vince happened to see us and he's like, you can't do that. That's Bret Hart's move. And we're like, well, he's not even here and you haven't talked to him in 10 years. He goes, you can't do that. That's Bret Hart's move. So then we're like, well, what are we going to do? Like, you know, it's typical wrestling. Well, if we can't do that, well, this match is going to suck then. Well, what are you going to do? <laughs> And then we go in the ring. He's like, hey, could you give me a Walls of Jericho on top of the ladder? I'm like, what are you talking about? And then we just went in there, and I remember we had Mike Kyoto hold the ladder for us as we went in the ring, actually on the floor, first of all, to see if we could actually do it. And then it was just like, what a great move. And I did it a couple of the times throughout my career with Van Damme and John Morrison, but it was never like it was with Chris. Like, just whatever reason how he was able to do that, that was completely him, 1,000% his creativity uh, coming up with this brand-new thing that had never been seen before. Yeah. Did you go in the ring with him and, and have, like, more confidence that this match is going to, you know what I mean? I'm not saying mm. you don't have to worry about the match, but yes. almost like, I yes. know this match is going to be good because I'm in with Chris Benoit type yeah. of a thing as compared to, you know, most other guys. There's maybe three or four guys in my career that I could say that with, and it was it was, it was was Chris, it was The Rock, well, we had great chemistry, Mysterio, and Shawn Michaels, where you know it doesn't, you don't... You don't even have to worry about like even calling anything. It doesn't matter. I know it's going to be good. Even if we try and have like a really crappy match, it's not going to happen. Because because I remember you know Chris Chris would not allow that, and he could really and Eddie was like that too. Uh, you know, talk about a lost art. You know, of being able to read the fans and and listening and moving and working and and he was really really good at that. I remember he had a great match with Steve Austin in Edmonton. And I know they didn't call anything because I remember beforehand them just going, let's just go in there because Steve was like that too. And this is on TV or maybe even a pay-per-view. It takes a lot of balls to go in there with nothing as the main event of a pay-per-view and pull off, you know, a five-star match. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that, that that's not something that, like, if we like, take your top two guys today in the WWE, whoever it may be, tell them to go in the ring and do a pay-per-view match without calling one thing, I guarantee the match would not be great. But for whatever reason, those it would be, guys. Be, they, they, they would be. It's just the whole mentality is different. It's now. different now, yeah. And yeah. whether that's good or bad or whatever, but they could really feel it and 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 and, and dictate the flow. Um, just as we we're, we're starting to wrap up here, because the, the end of Chris's career, he was basically working uh, on the ECW show, and fill me in on this. I, I think the last night of his career was he supposed to win the ECW World Title or the WCW World Title or sorry the WWE World Title. I think he was supposed to win the ECW title, I ECW think. ECW title, right, right, right. Yeah, now, I think. I think he was, yeah. Because I remember one of the theories when, when we did all the the shows afterwards, and I, I I didn't do any of them until I started seeing all the all the guys coming out of the woodwork and just talking <laughs> out of the, out of their asses. So I called Vince, and I was like, I want to do some of these shows. He said, please do. I did Larry King and a couple others. And the one person was convinced that he did what he did because he was considering a, a demotion, and he was so sad about the demotion that he lost his mind, which is totally ridiculous. But I was like, getting put on ECW, I don't think Chris would find that a demotion. I think he would find that a challenge because this was the third company uh, at the time. Yeah, I mean, I I, I never saw I, – I mean, it was one of those things where, you know, I, I thought that because the ECW thing was kind of where it was, – it was sort of like NXT is now in some ways in the sense that right. they, would, they would bring guys up from developmental and they'd put them on ECW first before they would put them on the other ones. So I always saw it as kind of like Chris being, you know, kind of like the leader, the coach, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. player coach in the sense of you've got this guy who, you know, is as good as anybody in the business and, and a guy that you can learn from. 
for these guys and a guy that you can build your confidence of that you can have a great match with because he's always going to have a good match. And I, I, I never saw it when, when he was put in that brand. I, I never saw it as a negative. I thought it was, I thought the whole idea was that these guys that were, you know, had potential, but they were not ready, ready right. all the way would work with him and, you know, he'd get them ready. And that was the whole idea of it. And, and at that stage of his career, that was probably his, his role. And, and, and again, you know how, how it is like, you can always take a guy like Chris Benoit anytime and like snap your finger and go, we need, we need this yeah. guy in, in a main event or we, we've got somebody, somebody's down, somebody's hurt. We need a program for Steve Austin or whoever that was Austin wasn't around then, but triple H, let's say, yeah. you know, whoever the top guy was, John Cena and somebody gets hurt and we need someone, we can always put Benoit in in two or three weeks of television. He's ready and yeah. it's going to work and we don't got a problem. So yeah, I, you know, I mean, you and I can beat ourselves to death trying to figure that one out, and we never, we never fully will. And and I know you have, and I probably have it as well. You know, you can never fully rationalize even the CTE thing. And it's like it's it's. I'm sure there's a, you know a lot, if not all, to that. Mm-hmm. E- even then, you know, it's like there's still things of like, you know, what I mean, you have kids, I have kids. Sure, yeah, of course. It's, it's it's unfathomable, and and it's 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 just so weird because like you know he was a real good friend of yours, and and. He was always nice to me, and he seemed like a, you know, a, a, a straight shooter or something like yeah. that. You know, where a guy like, you know, he could be gruff and he loved the business, and he could, um, you know, if people didn't respect the business. He could probably be real mean to them because they didn't respect the business like he did, and all that. But if you did respect the business, you know, he was great yeah. with you. But you know, it, it was never like you would see him as a a. I don't know, like, uh, well, you, you, I mean, there's no one that you would see would do this, let alone, like, you know, the most heinous crime that any wrestler in history has ever done, and that's the end after everything that he had done, you know, in the first 40 years of his life. It's interesting. Um, I remember he kicked Miz out of the locker room for, for months, and maybe Matt Stryker as well, but I remember Miz for, for certain, because when Miz first got there, obviously, you know, there's the unwritten rules that you have to live by as a wrestler. When they don't give you a rule book for it, you don't know any better. But, <laughs> you know, he was eating Kentucky Fried Chicken, over uh, sitting down eating, and, and Scott Armstrong's bag was beside him, and some of the crumbs from the chicken were getting on in Scotty Armstrong's bag. And Benoit saw that and flipped out and kicked Miz, banned him from the locker room for like you know months on end until I think he finally allowed him back in again. But that was kind of you know, I remember you know that was kind of Benoit's thing where like you said you had to have that respect, and there was a whole armada of of people who respected Chris Benoit. I mean, the whole generation of wrestlers, you know, but Chris, you had to earn his respect back. I remember another time with Davari in Australia, we were drinking absinthe, which is like this poisonous type of alcohol, which you're not supposed to drink, but whatever we were. And Davari had enough and split. And we were like, oh yeah, okay. So Chris like, he ain't leaving. He's not leaving. So he went to the front desk, got the room key for Davari, uh, opened up Davari's door and dragged him back down to the bar in his basically in his pajamas to continue drinking to show the respect for the business, you know. And mm-hmm. he he had that side to him, which was all about respect and all about wrestling and all about the business. Which to me, it's it's a shame, and you know, rightfully so that the the thing that he dedicated his life to, uh, because of the way that he died, he's basically erased from from the history. And, you know, the, the craziest thing, too, and, and again, you know, who's to get into his brain, but it's like, you know, the business did survive, and it was really, it was, you know, but, but you know, those first two months, I mean, like, oh, it was bad, there was dude. a lot of people who didn't want to watch, I mean, it was oh, yeah. a real, it was, I mean, I don't think there's ever been anything ever 
close to as damaging that ever happened to the business than even close. You know, very, where it was very well said, dude. You are so right about that. I agree a thousand percent. You, you know, know it, it's like it's like it wasn't gonna like I never thought it would kill the business, but and, and, and you know and, and eventually everything goes back. But you didn't know that at the time because remember like the first week or two where you know number one, I mean, so many people go, I just can't watch this wrestling for a while. And just and then the media thing, which you know, a lot of the media was fair, and a lot of the media was horrendous, absolutely yeah. beyond horrendous. And you know, you you saw it, I saw it, I was in the middle of it. Some of the things that were said, you know, that were, you know, so it was a terrible period for for wrestling. And it's so weird to me that a guy who loved wrestling so much would be the catalyst yeah. for that. And it's like, and you knew he loved it. It wasn't like, oh well, he didn't really love it. It's like he loved it more than than anything yeah. in the world. Everybody, I'm sure he loved his wife and his and his son more than anything in the world. And it's like this is, and that's where the whole thing of like, what happened? What was he thinking? What was he? You know, no, I, dude, like you uh-huh. said, a guy who loved wrestling so much almost led to its demise, and that's also why I think that no matter, no matter how much time passes, I mean, you you know how Vince is. I mean, Vince, Vince is a very emotional guy, and and um, I believe that. Even if, like, the statute of limitations was over where you, you know, let's say there was a legal rule where you are allowed to feel good about watching a Chris Benoit match. Like, let's say that was an actual law. Like, after 10 years, you're allowed to. I it's still 10 years. It has been 10 years. But I, I still don't think Vince would ever really embrace it because he's always going to think of Benoit as the guy who almost brought his business down in a lot of ways. It's not even that. There's an uncomfortable feeling because I mean, even even so, like, look, it's been ten years. I've watched exactly one match, and I felt bad when I was watching it. And yet, as great as the match was, right? And I mean, there's some people, and I know, like, you know, like that, you know, it's like, what, what do you say? It's like, you know, yeah, we're talking about him like this way, but it's like, if I was going, like, I feel bad about writing about him, yeah, in a glowing way, even though, you know, if you know, uh, he was one of the best wrestlers I ever saw, of mm-hmm, course. Mm-hmm. But it's just weird that how one weekend of your life, and his, I think it's the only person I could ever say where one weekend of his life, like, obfuscated everything he did in his life where he was giant of his profession. Right, it's yeah, just, yeah. It's just, it's just amazing. You know, I, I said it in my first book on how Chris and Eddie were so linked, best friends, uh, you know, the standing in the ring at WrestleMania, both of them world champions with the confetti coming down is probably one of my favorite memories of the business itself. But in their deaths, both dying before they're 40 or right at 40, whatever, I think Chris was 48, he was 39 or whatever he was, that the death happens and you got two paths. You got the path of Benoit, which is erased from history, and you got the path of Eddie, who's almost kind of become like the patron saint of the WWE, where we all love Eddie Guerrero, and we do. But you could that's like the difference between the two. Eddie will live on forever, whereas Chris will be buried you know, and like I said, it's hard to feel differently about it. And it's hard to, you know, with, with me, my career being so intertwined with his from 2000 to 2002, whatever that time frame was, and those matches are gone forever. And that's a big chunk of, of my career and some great stuff as well. Like one of my best rivalries ever, but I can never watch it or think about it or, or talk about it really. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and there's, probably, there's probably a lot of people, you know, especially, and again, like you said, there was a generation of like wrestlers that that came up, and it was like, yeah, you know, like 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 what Chris was with Dynamite Kid. They were with Chris, and then it, it's almost like you've got to. I remember when when shortly after Chris died, I remember Gabe Sapolsky, he was 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 um, had contacted me with um, he was booking Ring of Honor at the time, and it was almost like it was almost like like the whole 
Ring of Honor style of wrestling was yeah. kind of like guys, whether it's like Brian Danielson or whatever, these guys who were all kind of patterned after, in, in some ways, yeah. after Chris or, or, you know, and walked in the same type of footsteps as Chris Benoit. And, and he was, like, really worried because it was almost like, oh, my God, like this whole style or mentality of style. But it didn't really change that. But it was but at first, but you don't know that when it happens. And you're just thinking, like, oh, my God, like he spawned everything that we're doing. And, you know, you yeah. start thinking, like, wh- wh- you know, yeah. are, you, are we going to be able to do this style even? I mean, for me, like this last run in 2016 and early 17, it's like you look at Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, Finn Balor, uh, uh, Seth Rollins, all of them at various times came over to me uh, and said, you know, it's been a pleasure working with you. I was a huge fan of yours when I was a kid, which to me blows my mind because it's like I still feel like I'm the same age as them. But I know for a fact, if you're a Chris Jericho fan in the early 2000s, you damn well were a Chris Benoit fan too because we were pretty similar as far as work rate and that sort of thing. But they can never say that. Like, who's your influences? Oh, Chris Jericho. You can't say Chris Jericho and, and Chris Benoit. It's like even almost saying his name sometimes is almost like saying, like, you know, the, the name of Cthulhu. It's going to invoke some kind of horrible evil or just saying it makes you a bad person, which it doesn't, but it's still so uncomfortable to, to have to confront head on. So I think there's a lot of guys, I bet you in the W now, who were big fans of his that don't ever really mention his name either. Well, it's funny with, with, with Finn is, um, I always thought of Finn Balor as like, when, when he got big in Japan, I always thought of him as like the next generation of, of Chris sure. Benoit because, because, you know, the same type of thing where he, you know, he started in the dojos of Japan and then he worked his way up to being a, a, a real star in Japan from the bottom to the top. And then he came, you know, in. And also, and I don't know Finn Balor at all, but I mean, when I look at him and I look at his abs, I'm going yeah. like, he's probably like Chris Benoit in the sense that he's so, he's, to look like that, you know, it's like, it's one thing you could have a good physique and all that and, you know, just genetics and everything, but to look like Finn Balor or it's, it's almost like you look at a guy and go, okay, this guy watches every friggin' morsel that he eats. Yes. So he's probably like mentally, you know, and plus, you know, mentally he's probably like real close to Chris Benoit in that sense. Yeah, no, I agree. And you think of all those guys that make the name in Japan. Kenny Omega is another one that I think of, you know, yeah. a cross between Jericho and, and Benoit. So it's interesting. But, but last last question, do you feel, last two questions actually, do you feel uh, everything aside that Chris Benoit is one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time? In the ring, Bell yes. Bell, as good as anybody there's ever been. For You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know when to say like he was the greatest, but, um, you know, Bell, Bell, you know, it's funny because when people will say that, like, like who's the great, I never say Chris Benoit, but, but. Cause I you almost can't, should. you feel bad about it in a way. Yeah. 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 Cause like people will go and I'll, I'll mention like Kenny Kobash or you know, whatever, Sean Michaels, Manami Toyota, there's all, all those names, Ric Flair, whatever, you know, there's different yeah, names, the classic names, but, yeah. but, but it's like Chris should absolutely be in that conversation because night after night, I, I think he was more consistent than anyone. Yeah, um, you know, in the sense that he never really had a bad match because mm-hmm. I saw everybody else have bad matches. I think he was the most consistent. I think that you, it's like you could count on him. Um, and um, you know, and again, he worked Japan, he worked Europe, he worked the United States, he worked Mexico, and he was great everywhere. Yeah, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like he was a guy who yes, he's great at this style, but you take him and put him in another style. He worked WCW, worked WWF. I don't care where he, you you put him, ECW. He was going to be the the best worker in the company, or tied with the best worker in the company, whether the company's All Japan, New Japan, WWE, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. any, anywhere. He's adapting, and he's going to learn it. Mexico, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, so so 
you, 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 I mean, just the, the versatility and consistency and all that and, and 20 year career and everything, you know, he really does have to be in that list. Really? Yeah. I, I agree with you on that one for sure. Uh, last question. Is there a, a favorite Chris Benoit match of yours? One that stands out? Oh my God. Um, it's funny because, because again, you know, we never talk about it, but the ladder match that you had with him is, yeah. is among my favorites. Um, that's cool that you said that, man, because I find that match, even at the time when it happened before Chris passed away, was very underrated because yeah. it was the first match, ladder match, where it wasn't about how many falls can you take. And there was some good ones. It was about how can we use this as a weapon? Right, right. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was more of a fight than a yes. spectacle. Like, why would you not use this ladder to try and, you know, joust each other's heads off rather than just climbing? I remember Chris just, and we came up with so many spots in that match which you had never seen before, but you see them in every ladder match now. And if, if you guys go back and watch it, people listening, you'll see there's a bunch of stuff that are in every single ladder match that we came up with for that, for that one alone. Yeah, but Liger and Sasuke, for yeah, sure, in, classic. in Japan. Yeah. And um, Kurt Angle match was, was phenomenal. Oh, Whatever. great match. One, I think a lot of people, when they talk about like, wow. like Chris's best matches, the, the Kurt Angle match in, in great, I think it was Royal Rumble in Boston, maybe? Great chemistry those guys had, man. Because Chris could amateur wrestle, too. He came from that stampede, which that was part of the style. He was good at that, too. Yeah, yeah. So um, that was... Um, a great but, one, but, yeah. But, but, you know, like, I mean, I, when, when, when I was thinking about this show, the one thing that, that it kind of reminded me, like, there was a period from, like, maybe 2000 to 2002 where... You know, it was Rock and Austin and, and, and Chris and Triple H and, you know, you're in there. I mean, but it was like, that was really a period where, where I remember, like, they would, they would let Raw main events go, like, 15 minutes. Yeah. But, but they were, like, kick-ass, like, four-and-a-half-star television matches that, um, and Chris was in a lot of Yeah. I mean, Chris and Rock had incredible chemistry. I think that those were some of the Rock's best matches. Agreed. Um, you know, in 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 the sense, and, and Kurt too. You know, all th- those three guys against each other. I just remember that they would be in these raw main events, and you know, where people don't think of Rock as being like this this oh. like wrestler at that level, but one of the but, best. And, and maybe they should, but but it's like I remember like I remember people even say it's like, oh well, you know, he's really entertaining and this and this, but he's not as good as blah blah. And I go like, well, just put him in there with like with Kurt Angle and 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 you were you know like like there's a Dude. whole bunch. He certainly had great matches. He was he was one of my favorite opponents of all time. That reminds, reminds me of another match. I don't. We just talked about this a few a few weeks ago. I don't remember the match itself, but it did one of the highest ratings. It wasn't it me and Rock versus Triple H and Benoit? Correct. That's the one I was telling you about with the, the time change. How Rock was mad that the they, the time change right, because, because because they put the back issue of the Observer up on our site, and I was just going through it, just to kind of jar my mind, and it was like the it was like the second or as maybe the third highest rated match in yeah. Raw history. Yeah. And it's like, oh, my God. And then I think I mentioned that. And then you mentioned the story about, yeah, the time change and the Rock's routine was, like, thrown off. And he was all, whatever. He yeah. was mad because, yeah, we just had a daylight savings time, but they hadn't changed the clock in the building. So it really was 9 o'clock, and he thought it was 8 o'clock. And he's like, well, it's 8 o'clock. It's like, no, it's actually 9 o'clock. He's like, well, the Rock isn't ready. I'm like, dude, not even the Rock can stop time. <laughs> we we got to go. <laughs> but yeah, man. So, well, Dave, thank you so much for doing this, man. It's something I've been thinking about for a long time, and I, I thought you'd be the perfect guy to, to chat about this with, and you were. So I appreciate it, man. Okay, thanks. Anytime.
Thanks again to Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter for taking the time to talk about uh, Chris Benoit and share his insight and memories about Benoit's wrestling career. I know there's going to be a lot of reaction and feedback about the episode. I'm expecting it. I felt it was something I needed to do for me. So um, hopefully you guys uh, uh, enjoyed it. But like I said, I'm not downplaying or ignoring what Chris did in the last weekend of his life. It's incomprehensible and it's unacceptable and it's awful. It's horrific. Uh, But his career, putting that aside, was still pretty majestic. And I wanted to just discuss that. And it was tied in with me for many years. I mean, uh, the late 90s, early 2000s was all about Jericho Benoit. So I wanted to do it, and I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope uh, I hope you got as much out of it as I do. But So thanks for listening. Uh, keep and keep listening. i got a couple quick things before we wrap up today's show and head into the weekend. Please, it's time to pre-order my new book, No is a Four-Letter Word, out August 29th. But you can pre-order it right now at my Amazon store. Just go to Amazon.com slash shop slash I am Jericho. 20 principles on how you can achieve your goals and dreams just like I did. No is a four-letter word. It's out August 29th. I will be announcing my book signings very soon. And of course, in the interest of lightening things up on this heavy show, let's check out the latest ridiculous offering from Team Tiger Awesome. Birthdays, weddings, promotions. There's so many days for celebration, but what if you have a complicated history with that person? What do you get them? Well, at itscomplicated.biz, we split the difference. So we'll ship one of our handcrafted beeswax, jasmine, and elderflower candles straight through a window to let that person know, happy birthday, but also, you're a dick. It's complicated. Nothing makes a nicer wedding gift than one of our polished northern redwood cheese boards. Then we engrave each one by hand with a giant middle finger and hurl it at either the bride or groom. Your choice. Rival got a promotion? Give him or her a 1980s classic, a vintage Newton's Cradle used in the film American Psycho. Then when they leave their corner office, gift time, we hit them with a shovel. We've got you covered for all of life's events. New baby, quinceanera, we've got it all. And although we're not legally allowed to sell at the moment because, well, it's complicated, maybe we can work something out like Bitcoin or something, it's complicated.biz. Please see our ad in this week's Team Tiger Awesome show on the Jericho Network and Podcast One. TTA has got you covered on laughs and ridiculosity every Sunday on the Jericho Network and Podcast One. Go subscribe at Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star rating and review. And hey, go ahead and do the same for all the shows on the Jericho Network. Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon, great interview with Don Felder, uh, ex-Eagles, uh, a couple uh, episodes ago. Killing the Town with Storm and Cyrus. They're doing a great new feature now. Good match, bad match. Uh, they didn't review a good match, and they review a bad match, so it's not just a catchy name. Raven Effect, new episodes every Monday. He's talking about how he invented the Dudley's characters. Uh, and very intricate, very smart. Raven, uh, one of the best wrestling minds I've ever met. And, of course, our flagship show, Keep It at 100 with Conan. I was just on last week. Congratulating them on their one-year uh, anniversary. Beyond the Darkness, talking all things paranormal every Monday through Friday, five days a week. And if you have not subscribed to the latest podcast from Beyond the Darkness, get to patreon.com. Sign up for True Crime Tuesdays. This podcast is ad free, no commercials, just five bucks a month, and you get new episodes every Tuesday on patreon.com. All right, still a few tickets left for my upcoming Words of Jericho show. Listen in, man, in my hometown of Winnipeg with special guests Lance Storm and Cyrus, August 25th at the Club Regent uh, Event Center. Tickets are available at Ticketmaster. I'm also going to be on Wappinger Falls for a rare indie appearance. Very, very rare indie appearance uh, from a good friend, uh, Mike Lombardi. And that's going to be August 27th, Wappinger Falls. I am not wrestling. I am doing a, a book signing. So come check me out there. 
August 27th, uh, NEW Wrestling. I will be doing a book signing before the show, uh, saying hi, uh, greeting, uh, shaking hands and kissing babies and all that other stuff. So come check me out there. And one last shout out to all the great Talkers Jericho sponsors. You find them at podcast1.com. Click on the Killer Deals button at the top of the page, then hit the Talk is Jericho button. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Post your first job uh, for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Jericho. That means you can post uh, whatever you're looking for for free on ZipRecruiter.com. NatureBox. Get three free snacks with your first order at NatureBox.com slash Jericho. I love the uh, the coconut cashews, as you know. DDP Yoga. Get 20% off the DDP Yoga Now app. The DVDs and all related matters at DDPYoga.com slash Jericho. Of course, if you're hungry, you go to Little Caesars. Get the extra most bestest pizza for just six bucks at participating location. And of course, Geico. Save money on your car insurance. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, go back and listen to Childhood of Jericho. I'm growing up, man. You got to listen to it with uh, Wise Cousin Chad and How You Doing, Todd. What's the good word, Todd? Uh, talking about our childhoods. It was lots of fun. Great memories. Uh, thank you for listening. Keep listening for the 60-second AP News headlines coming up next. And coming up on Wednesday, it's the return of Spiwi, the list of Spiwi. He's got a new album coming out, West of the Red. It's on iTunes now. He's going to tell us about that. We're going to play a couple of his new songs, and you're going to hear some more hilarious, ridiculous banter from uh, from the lunatic known as Spiwi. That's on Wednesday, the list of Spiwi. We'll see you then. In the meantime and in between time, stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs. Kiss your loved ones. Give them hugs. Uh, and just be cool, man. Uh, be, be cool and buy bonds, as Braven would say. Have a great weekend and a big yeah, boy, to all of you. Listen to new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday on the Podcast One app. Or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com.